Hello everyone and happy February. Bob Pye could not make it in today because we're having a weather event in Rochester, New York on this taping day. It's the tail end of a couple day storm. Uh, probably unfortunately maybe only five, six inches here uh, around the airport of Rochester. But I have heard, heard pockets of 19 inches down in Woods Valley in Rome. Uh, I think Whiteface had 13 inches, I believe, or 11. So we're in a weather event. So I'm giving Bob. Bob gets an excuse for not being here. But we do have a guest on today that I've been excited to have on for a while. Uh, he's calling in from Geneva, New York today, uh, where he resides. And I know he just went on a nice trip out west, so he's going to talk to us about some snow he saw. Um, but who, today we have with us Jacob Fox, who works or owns Closed Loop Systems, uh, is an athlete. And with no further ado, Mr. Jacob Fox. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you calling in today. And uh, how does Geneva look? How did you guys look for the snow totals on this little event we had? Um, it's been piling up. I, it was funny. I got back late night uh, from the airport on Wednesday and uh, drove through a pretty harrowing um, storm on the way home. And there's probably six, seven inches and probably three since then. So there's about nine inches that have been piled around the city. So I guess I should consider maybe checking out Greek Peak to see how much they got down there, huh? Yeah, I skied Bristol yesterday, actually. You, <laughs> you came right back from out west and you already hit Bristol, huh? Yeah, my friend was like, you want to go? And I was like, well, I'm I'm feeling in the mood. <laughs> so I just went and hit it for two and a half hours Perfect. yesterday afternoon. And you were probably just, it was tiring probably, right? Because this was a good heavy snow. Yeah, it was good. And we just, I mean, no one was there at around 3.30 to 5.30. So we were just doing laps. That's the best. That's the best. So Bristol, for those of you who haven't listened to podcasts before, is just south of Rochester, 1,200 vertical feet, which is the most between the Adirondacks and the Rockies. We're very fortunate to have here in Rochester. So tell me about your turns yesterday. Was it, uh, was it snow was falling yesterday? So, so was there a lot of powder, a lot of untracked stuff? Uh, there was some powder in some spots, but what I kind of liked about it was that it was pushed around and it made some moguls. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I like I like a little bit of challenge. Uh, and and so the the one run comet on Bristol uh, is a nice it's a nice steep one, and it had enough snow that the it was pushed around to make some moguls. And I had a great time just running that, feeling like Jeremy Bloom of years past. I love it. And when it comes down like that, it's soft because they're not packed down and you really can move the snow a little bit. It makes it funner to go over them. Yeah, and it was funny. I was skiing out west with these big skis for the powder. And then I, my my East Coast skis are also my childhood skis. So they're way shorter. And so I, so I had that kind of, you know, weight vest phenomenon. And I was just, my turns were really tight yesterday. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. That's awesome. Cause that's funny. I just pulled my son's skis. So after my son got new skis, um, some, uh, what did he get? Lines, I think, uh, twin tips. Cause he likes to play around in the park a little bit. So I gr earned his own vocals, which are like one forty sevens. So really small, mm -hmm. but they got a good base on them. So I was thinking, mm -hmm. man, if I go on Sunday this weekend, I'm taking those are the ones I'm taking. It's, it's the small ski. I want to do some, some fun on the terrain with all this new snow. 
Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about the 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 expression "Don't get out over your skis," and I felt like with the short skis, it was a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the truth. Um, so, when did you learn how to ski? Um, young age. My, I actually, I grew up in between Kansas and Texas, which don't have a lot of skiing, but we grew up going to Colorado a lot. The Beaver Creek Mountain and Vale were the ones that I grew up on. Probably went two to three times a year from the time I was about two till. Uh, about late teenager and and then uh since then i've been going out to montana and uh and that's really where i skied 90 or so percentage of my skiing you're a lucky boy yeah yeah i'm spoiled so so tell me about that dynamic a little bit it wasn't that you skied a lot in the winter but where you skied was was more challenging tell me tell me how that was for you yeah, well, I mean, depends who you ask. It's it's challenging. Some people say the you know the west you know big runs and deep powder is is easier because you're not dealing with you know poor snow coverage and you know ice as much. But Beaver Creek's a challenging mountain, and I mean, it has uh, you know the Birds of Prey section, which is they do the World Cup downhill and Super G and those things. So I grew up you know sometimes skiing those Golden Eagle run. Uh, and which is incredibly like difficult as far as like length and steepness, and then it can accumulate some powder. <clears throat> and so I grew up doing that, and you know, then Vail, you know, I mean, it's you could explore it forever. And then we kind of got out of there five years ago or so. My parents moved to Montana when they retired, and now Montana's at the spot. Although I went to Colorado last year, and I still appreciate it. And when you say Montana's a spot, they only have a couple places to go, but what they have is really good. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, Big Sky is the one is the resort, and then uh, and then there's a ton of local mountains that are really impressive, like Bridger that we were talking about, Bridger Bowl, uh, which the city of Bozeman actually owns, and it's it's really awesome culture as well as it gets some great snow, but I mean. Bozeman's only a few hours away from Jackson Hole and Grand Targhee and Sun Valley. So you can hit, you know, a lot of things from that kind of southern Montana area. Yeah, and you're talking about a lot of different styles skiing, too, in the different places you're talking about, which is which is cool. But at the end of the day, you're mountaineering to a point. I mean, um, you know, skiing's not really a pretentious sport. It's more for people who really like to be outdoors and enjoy that exhilaration, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when did you move to Rochester in this region? Was it for college? Yeah, I went to college at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in uh, in Geneva. And uh, I graduated in 2016. And uh, I got an opportunity to work with Vermicomposting and uh, started a business out of that. And so I, I really like the area. I mean, it's beautiful. I have friends here and uh, it's really connected you know, to agriculture. So that's that's good for my business. So growing up, do you have siblings? Uh, yep, I have an older brother. He actually lives out in Denver and uh, went to University of Colorado. And But University of Colorado didn't have a soccer team, so I, I didn't have that option. No, so you played soccer growing up as well? So that was your summer sport? Yeah. Skiing was your winter sport kind of thing? Yeah, but I mean, I did grow up in Texas, so I actually played soccer in the winter because uh, there is no winter. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 
but I always, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I, you, I grew up playing a bunch of different sports. I specialized in soccer later and went to play that in college. And, uh, but I always, you know, in, in the winters, I was always had skiing on my mind. Uh, so did you play, you played soccer down there in Geneva? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. For four years. Mm. Excellent. So, um, is what soccer drew you to that school or was it the agriculture? What drew you to this area? Oh, the soccer. Yeah. I didn't know anything about the area. I, I, I went to high school in Kansas city, Missouri, and, uh, there's not a lot of good, um, both soccer and academic schools that are, have a good, both good soccer and academics. Everyone kind of comes to the East coast to the NESCAC, which is like Middlebury, Bowdoin, like all those schools. And then, uh, like Liberty League, which is like Hobart and Union and Skidmore and RPI and all those places. And so I came out here to go to some soccer camps and the Hobart coach really liked me and he kept asking me to come out. And I was like, well, I, you know, I know nothing about Geneva, New York. And then one day I came out and I thought it was beautiful and I really loved the program. And uh, that's, 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 it's all because of that, which is awesome. That's a great that's a, that's a great way. I didn't realize that people viewed this area like that because there are so many colleges around here. But it, it always made me curious. So so it's because you were uh, smart enough to understand that you just don't want to go play soccer anywhere just to play soccer. You want to make sure you're going to get a good uh, a degree out of it as well that mattered. Yeah, and soccer is tricky because uh, a lot of uh, colleges have actually cut soccer programs. Um, so like none of the Big Twelve schools have soccer, which, you know, takes away a lot of options and in the Midwest and South and SEC, uh, none of those schools, um, none know the PAC 12, uh, or maybe a few of the PAC 12 schools, but it's very, and so kind of what you have is, uh, and then there's all these different rules is in D1, D2, D3, and NAIA that basically soccer more than any other college sport will have pretty good parity between the top 50 teams in D1, D2, D3, and NAIA. So it kind of opens up your options. Uh, like if you're a top player, like you're not necessarily like, you know, half to look D1. You could be looking D3, you know, and and still be having, I mean, we were beating D1 teams like as a D3 soccer team. And then probably the best team in the nation is an NAIA team. So it kind of, it's it, it really is like specific, uh, like, for all these different regions uh you kind of have these like specialties like both academically and soccer wise and that's the northeast is a hotbed like uh, really right in in this area is is a hotbed i never realized that how cool Mm -hmm. And, and you're right there is a lot of parody in soccer and it makes sense uh university of buffalo cut their men's soccer program just before my school and some went to school there because um, that was something he was eyeing as a potential. Uh, and it was because uh, a, a lot of times you have to have the same amount of, so people know this, people have the, it, because of Title IX a long time ago, you have to have the same amount of scholarships on the men's side and women's side. So when you talk about football teams, um, that's a lot more scholarships. So, so programs like soccer, baseball, uh, wrestling are, are programs that tend to get cut at some colleges um, to offset the scholarships um, that you're needed for the football team. Yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, the whole thing is kind of played out. Um, but in, in the, in the long run, I think that college soccer, while it's a great experience and there's like 
uh, some great opportunities to develop at that point. Really, if you're good enough at that point at college age, you should be getting matriculated into a pro, a professional program. And if we are thinking about how we as a country get better at soccer and compete with Europe and other countries. And that's the model in Europe where, where kids will be, you know, get get themselves into a, a house, like a soccer academy type program under a professional team where they have different levels and the kids move up and down. And, and, and now academics is usually tied into that as well, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, in Europe, it's less pay for play. So in America, you know, you pay to get on the team. But in Europe, with uh, if, if a team wants you, they pay for you. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they'll even pay. I mean, you know, in an extreme case, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, like their families were getting houses when they were 10, you know, because the teams knew that they were that big of an investment. Um, but, you know, smaller things. I mean, my friends uh, who played professionally in Sweden at 15 was making $10,000 a month. And, uh, you know, at 15. So there's all, you know, they can... They can actually provide stuff. But in America, we have, you know, all these amateur and professional rules. And so actually, if, if you were to have been paid for soccer in the past, you can't play D1 uh, because you, you've lost your amateur status. And uh, so there's, there's, there's all these different like carrots and sticks that they use in America. But in other countries, it's kind of more just carrots. although there's bad things that happen from, you know, young kids earning a lot of money as well. Yeah, no, no, there is on both sides of it. It's very interesting that I've never really thought about it from this perspective. So, so I like that you're, you're spelling this out for people. Um, and over in Europe, like people go back and forth. Like there's a couple of American players that have gone over there. Like Jordan Allen, I think went over there for a while. Um, I'm trying to think, Um, and I'm trying to think of someone else who might have out of this area. And, and, and then the other dynamic here is here is now there's the programs like the New York, the MLS teams have like built, they'll, they'll come and partner with different academies at different levels in the U S um, and get kids into this feeder program to try and get them into the Olympics and into these uh, professional ranks. Um, but you're basically taking them away from the high school altogether. Um, and college uh, altogether in some cases. That, that's what would be nice if they could get paid, right? Is that, that what you're kind of uh, leading to? Yeah, I'm for sure. I mean, it was, it's kind of, uh, you know, if it's not getting paid, it's at least, you know, getting it subsidized, like all of the travel and, you know, all of the, I mean, soccer, you don't need as much gear. But, you know, having, you know, con- a, a good stream of cleats, um, you know, the good, the right equipment to be able to train to the top, of the, uh, you know, their abilities, you know, good access to good coaching, um, you know, access to healthcare types of things. So when you do get injured, you know, you're not just like, you know, rubbing some dirt on it. And, uh, and, and, and so, um, but it's funny how it, it's all been changing very recently. I actually, the year I graduated, um, the, the next year uh, after I graduated high school, Kansas and Missouri passed a rule that you couldn't play um, academy, uh, which is like a, on, on, as a youth of a professional team, you couldn't play academy and high school. So it actually did a huge drain of talent from the high school soccer 
group, which actually Kansas City was a, a another hotbed for for high school soccer. And and our year uh, was was great, and all the teams were really knew how to play. But once that rule was put in place, um, all of the good kids, most of the good kids, were taken out by the academy section, and and so then high school was uh, kind of a joke. Yep, and that's a, a little bit what they're worried about in New York State, and like the New York Revolution is tied a little bit to this area. And I, I know there was two kids in my um, my kids' high school, West Roundquite. Um, there was two kids that played for the academy, not for the high school their senior year, and it was uh-huh. just tough because that team would have been so much better if those two guys played for the high school. It would have been they they would they would have done some work, um, but not having them was noticeably different. Yeah, and it's such a it's such a tough decision for the kid to make because I was a very social kid in high school, so I you know probably would have looked at that and said, you know, I would rather uh, I would rather you know play with my friends and in front of my high school versus like the academy uh, version where you know you're on the road uh, every weekend and uh, as, you know and you're a kid too and our country doesn't revere soccer as much. So, you know, you're on the road and your friends are like, you know, where do you keep going? (laughs) And, and, uh, and versus in other countries, you know, if you're going on the road with a professional soccer team, uh, you know, everyone knows that that's, you know, a very impressive thing. Uh, so I, it's, it's, but, but for the goodness of soccer, we need to be getting kids when they're really developing like 15 to 20, three getting them into systems so that they can uh like improve and 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 understand you know by the time they physically mature they really understand how to play that style of soccer if that makes sense no it does and and that's a buddy of mine uh and i talk about this his son and my son were good are our good technical players. Uh, my son's older than his son. His son's going through high school right now, and he just sees the quality of the games for their travel team is so much better than the high school, um, where it's more physical and just kind of, you know, brute, I guess, in a way, and not so technical. Um, it's tough to find those teams that are really good technically together. Um, but that yet he goes with his son. His son, you know, will be a, a, one of the best players on, on a team of, uh, not high school with the with the travel team. It's just a funny dynamic. Mm-hmm. Because because it, it's played so much better um, with the well trained kids and, and the better talent level. Um, what position were you? Were you go- goalie, defense, striker? What did no, you do? not goalie. Uh, no, any <laughs> anything but goalie and center back, basically. But I I played forward a lot, like in growing up in school and college. Uh, but then when I went to go play, uh, like with professional teams i've played right back and uh i've i've played center mid uh so i've kind of anywhere but center back and and goalie is what i say <laughs> excellent and, and that versatility that that's pretty key it means you have a good left foot good right foot oh yeah at a, at a young age my dad actually who knows nothing about soccer other than you can't use your hands uh he uh I, he was my coach and i i had a pulled groin at like fifth grade or something and uh instead of being very debilitated by it he said just practice with your left foot so i've I've been good with both feet ever since i was young and that's helped with versatility and which is you know coaches love absolutely yeah my my son played left uh left black left wing 
Um, and he wasn't left footed. He just had a good left foot. And, uh, you know, he was always good with skill work in the backyard. And, and it's funny because I don't know m- much about soccer either when I first got into it. But I coached my son and some of his friends for the first two or three years before they went to travel. And they, you know, far superseded my ability to coach. But those couple uh-huh. years, they hated my practices because all they wanted to do <laughs> scrimmage. But I would have uh-huh. them going cone work back and forth. Like, because I just knew, like, that's the foundation. Like, I remember the Stack Brothers. They're just looking at me like, can't we play? <laughs> no, left foot all the way down. I don't want to see your right foot touch that ball. Go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it's 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 totally got you know you got to learn the fundamentals. Um, but you know the the free flow, nothing nothing beats a free flowing game. I'm on. I'm always on team scrimmage. <laughs> still, <laughs> amen. So what we did was we offset it. So after I couldn't coach anymore, um, what we did was we did Sunday soccer. So we had mm-hmm. Iroquois school was like a couple doors down from my house. So I would have cones and, um, you know, small goals or whatever and, and soccer balls. I had this little bag and we would go down there with pennies and every Sunday, pretty much, you know, spring to fall. Um, I, I would say 90% of the Sundays we had between 12 and 25 people playing uh, Sunday soccer. So that was our scrimmage day. That was nothing but we just sat out there and we just we picked teams, made the field based on the amount of kids we had or, or adults. So it was basically our local neighborhood, all the adults and the travel team all knew that we met at Sunday at noon. Um, and even on my, when I was doing triathlons this time too, if it was a triathlon day for me, I don't care where I was, I had to hustle back to get back for a noon Sunday soccer. So I'd be racing <laughs> yeah. at like seven in the morning, have to get done with my race. Sometimes I would not stay at the podium if I, if I was top three or some age group so I could get back for Sunday soccer. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, Rochester is a soccer city. Yeah, and it was fun that we had um, club passes for the Rhinos as well through the soccer program. So mm. me, I would have a minivan, my rusty minivan at the time, and uh, I would pack it with Spencer and any of his buddies. They come with the pro cards. I'd go with ten bucks. I'd buy one beer for myself, which was fine. Give Spencer five bucks for some to eat. It was the cheapest night out, and I had instruments. Those kids loved it for like three years in a row. It was the best. That's awesome. And that's what's missing now in Rochester. We don't have the rhinos. They didn't market a lot. You didn't see a lot of kids wanting to go out there. Back then, there was a lot of clubs that went out there. Like, it was a nice night out for me as a young parent, single dad. It was a cheap night out for me. And I got to hang out with my son and four of his buddies, like a row behind him, let them be all goofy, whatever I never, whatever they wanted to do, they could, you know, so they didn't run around. And we had a blast. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, you know, the, the Lancers, you know, are back. And that's, you know, trying to, trying to take that, you know, take that niche. Thank you for, Uh, thank you for reading that segue. Yeah, for sure. So tell me about the Lancers. Yeah. So the Lancers, a great organization. Uh, It's kind of formed. I I think it's probably three years ago that it's officially been formed, but uh, it's kind of been a group that's been kind of, uh, playing together for six, seven years now in Rochester. Uh, it's, you know, college, uh, players and, and, you know, uh, other high school, some high school, good kids and, and ex pros, you know, and there's a great Rochester soccer culture. And so been playing together and, 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 you know, various men's leagues and such. And so, you know, once the rhinos kind of faltering this, this one league, it's so funny in soccer, these leagues always pop up. It's, you know, the, USFL, the U, you know the, I mean the, the 
USL one, two, the, mm-hmm. now it's the NPSL. So the NPSL is, is technically the fourth level of the American soccer pyramid. And so, uh, the Lancer started playing in that. Um, and then, then indoor, uh, kind of got involved where, the, you know, it, it's soccer basically on a hockey rink. It's a, it's basically the American, uh, I, I never knew anything about indoor soccer growing up in Texas because we just played soccer outside year round. But, uh, the, the indoor game is very, uh, popular and, uh, Doug Miller, local Rochester soccer legend, he uh, he he got involved with the Lancers, and he's an indoor soccer legend as well. So technically, uh, the, there's a pro indoor season going on right now. The Lancers are playing in MASL one, uh, which is what's major the name of the league? Arena. It's M- 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 MASL, so it's Major Arena Soccer League. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's legit. I mean, they're going to Kansas, they're going to Florida, they're going all around playing these teams. Last year they were in MASL two. This year MASL one. Um, I I had the opportunity to to play with them, but um, right now I'm just focusing on my business and uh, and I'm in I'm in Geneva, so it it kind of makes it's it's not an impossible commute, but uh, you know I. If I'm doing it, I like to be 100% committed, but I go and practice with them, and it's really a fantastic level of soccer. And they're they're right now the games are going on. It's usually uh, Saturdays and Sundays or Fridays and Saturdays. I, I forget how many home games they have left, but it's a great time. And a few thousand people go out to the Dome Arena in Henrietta, uh, and it's it's a really really good level of soccer. What's the size of the field out there, Domarina versus uh, at Blue Cross where they used to play? Uh, it's it's same. I mean, I don't know the indoor soccer dimensions, but they're you know they're standard. You know, probably a hundred, you know, feet by. I I don't want to. I don't want to. No, it's okay. No, yeah, so so it's a pretty. So I I guess my thought thought was that basically every arena they play it has to be a standard. standard. Yeah, yeah. It's, cool. It's just like a hockey rink, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, I my kid. We loved going to see him when they were at uh, the Lancers were playing out of Blue Cross. It was one of our favorite nights out. Um, I I haven't seen them in a couple of years, so I'm glad to hear they're back in this league. Um, I I don't follow local media like I have, and this is definitely something that's slipping under my radar. So so I'm glad you're putting it back out there for people. Um, how many how many guys on the team? Tell me a little bit about the league. Like, did you play for them last year a little bit? Uh, yeah, I've, I've been just like showing, I mean, everyone kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, fall, uh, falls around the nucleus of kind of Doug's, uh, or place out in Spencerport, his, his, uh, his bubble. And so that's, you know, where we have a lot of practices. And so we've been practicing out there for a few years and last year was the first year that they did an, an official, uh, indoor league since I think they folded, you know, in 2012, or I forget the exact year that, it, but they came back and did MASL two last year and actually got second place in the whole league and ended up like flying out to, um, like California. It was a really incredible season. Uh, and then the NPSL this summer made it to the playoffs, um, and then jumped up a league this year. So, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of moving in a, in a good direction, but, um, I've just been, you know, kind of popping in and out, you know, practicing. I I love the game. So that's the best soccer around. So I'm, I'm definitely, you know, keeping my, keeping my relationship alive with that. 
Yeah, you know, might might have a comeback in the next few years. <laughs> I like it. Well, that's the whole thing, right? You just keep playing with the guys. You 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 serve as a training partner for them, and and when your schedule opens up, you just get to slide right in again. Yeah, for sure. Of course, I'm until your skills deteriorate. <laughs> What's it? Until your skills deteriorate, and then and then and then um, Doug Miller's still whooping your butt and telling you about it. Yeah, I think it's the you know, the skills or the body. You know, it's one of the two. <laughs> That's great. Did I cut you off? What did you want to say? No, no. I was saying that the dream would always be is to have a, a team in Geneva. Um, it's it's funny. I, I went to Germany to try out for some pro soccer teams, and there was literally a professional soccer team in a city the size of Geneva. And it's like, you know, it, it could be possible. <laughs> it is. But I guess I want to put this out there, too, perspective-wise. Um, Europe is like smaller than the whole United States, right? And so you talk mm-hmm. about a country like England where you got a bunch of pro teams, but really travel is not much. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, from New York City to to what? Buffalo maybe? I mean, uh, you know, we're not talking the about... The longest, a, yeah. You know what I mean? So so here, um, regionally, if you have players spread out amongst this whole 50 states, you know, you're talking about a lot of travel to bring the best let's say, you know, 500 soccer players together regularly to, to train together. Like, like logistically, I think that's one of the things in Europe where, where they have the advantage or, or in the smaller countries. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, Steven Gerrard, Liverpool soccer legend, when he came over to play in the MLS for the LA galaxy, he even was talking about how it was so crazy, the, the long flights in between games. And it was so difficult, you know, they're used to just taking a, you know, I mean, literally a five-hour train maximum from anywhere in, in England to play a game. And that's what we, I mean, it's it's there, but, uh, you know, in America, we think that, you know, only, you know, the major cities can have professional teams. And, and you know, that's just not true. No, you really have to have the culture of people to support an organization. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if there's 13,000 people in Geneva and, you know, 5,000 of them always show up to games and, you know, I mean, that's, you know, better we can say a Rochester sometimes. Uh, no, amen. And, and, you know, you could pull from down horses, you know, people can drive from south of Seneca Lake there and come up, you know, you got Corning down there, you got some other places that aren't, you know, Watkins Glen's just south that they can come up as well. And then you got Syracuse you can pull from as well. Yeah, there's a great group of Spanish-speaking soccer players down here that I play with. I'm sure of that. And they're all probably working in the at the college, right? Uh, working at a lot of the farms. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, a lot of Red Jacket employees, a bunch of people, and uh, Cherry Bundy, which just left. And there's a few uh, other big farms around here, Peterson Farms, Hemdale Farms, uh, some great farms around here that uh, employ a bunch of people. And I get to hang out with their employees and play soccer. <laughs> I love it. Let's keep talking athletics here for the next couple minutes. Um, I, I love that area, and you met, mentioned Red Jacket, and I and I got uh, bring it up is is they're one of the big sponsors usually of the Muscle Man Triathlon that's held down there in Geneva, uh, which is one of my favorite events. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done a triathlon or, or any kind of running of that, uh, uh, you know, to side your training. I'd like to. I've been I've been me I've been eyeing that triathlon, but. You know, you got to sign up so quick, you know, so far ahead of time. That's that's kind of been my difficulty. Is uh, you know, if, if they were, if someone asked me on the day, 
hey, you want to go run this triathlon? I got nothing going on. Yeah, I'd love to try it. But, uh, <laughs> oh, you're that of, fit? You know, you're that fit that you can just go do that? I, I The swimming would be tough, but I'm biking and running all the time. And uh, so I, I, I'm pretty confident in my biking and running abilities. Uh, and I'm, you know, I could, I could make it through, a, you know, a swim. So my, when I first started doing triathlons, I would say, I tell people the first five or six races I did, my, I did very little tra- training and swimming. It was basically go in the open water and go and hopefully get through it as fast as I can. So I can get to the bike and swim, which I, or the bike and run, which I knew I could crank through. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, that's, you know, that could be the killer. You know, it could wear you out. You're coming out of the water like, what did I just get, go through? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got beat up. Yeah, which makes it which is even wilder considering, you know, Ironmans and those things. It's like, you know, one or two miles. Like, oof. Can't yeah. even imagine that. Yeah, but, you know, when I did my Ironman, I, it was in Lake Placid. So, oh, whoa. It, yeah, so it, it's uh, Mirror Lake in the middle. And oh, yeah, I love Mirror Lake. Yeah, yeah, so Mirror Lake, yeah. and, and most people don't know this, but under the surface of Mirror Lake, there's a cable. Okay, mm. right? So it's a non-motorized lake. So down underneath, because it's basically a permanent um, uh, course for the Ironman, because they have uh. it there every year, right? So mm. during the year, they also keep small buoys on it so people can train out and swim. So they usually like have some of the corner buoys. So really, Mirror Lake, is it's not so bad to swim because it's a very calm lake, always, uh, cause it's so small, but then it's a triangle. So it's a, you know, it's a one mile, you go out, you do a mile and then you come back in, hit the beach for a second and you go do your, your other mile and a quarter or whatever. Um, so it's actually not that daunting other than the fact that there's just so many people swimming at one time. Oh, interesting. So that's, that's a wild. So how you did a, a mile or two miles. So, uh, an Ironman is two, what is it? 2.4 miles swim, 112 mile bike, and then the marathon. Wow. So the, it was 2.4 mile swim right there in Mirror Lake, and it's two laps. You go down and do one lap, and then you come back and do a second lap, and then you're out. That's serious. Yeah. So that's not so bad as far But then you got some um, Ironman events. Uh, now, the Muscle Man, that's – all right, so let's go back to the Muscle Man because let's stay in that area. Well, we'll uh, the Muscle Man is – they do several races. Um, one year I did the two races. So the first day is a sprint uh, um, triathlon, and the second one is uh, – um, a half Ironman, which is 1.2 mile swim, 70 mile bike, uh, I'm sorry, 60 something mile bike ride, and then a 13.1 mile run. And the 13 mile run includes going up one of the farms behind Geneva there, behind your college, like up a farmer's field, like up a dirt road that is the, yeah, it's, it's, I know like, that farm. I, I go there for pictures anytime I'm, if I'm not racing, I'm in the area, I go there to support people because that is the tough, toughest <laughs> hill on the whole course. Oh, it's brutal. Especially it's, like, it's at like the nine mile mark of the run too after you're just killing it all day. Um, but yeah, that's a great course. Awesome. The ra- ra- race um, was run. Um, just It's one of my favorites. I love that area. So you got to do that race. And, and the sprint is on Saturday and then they had the half Ironman on Sunday. Yeah, for sure. That's on the bucket list for sure. No doubt. Um, what else can you tell people about the Geneva area? Maybe they wouldn't know uh, things that should pe- people need to stop in Geneva and see. Yeah, I mean, I'm a you know the I'm a I'm a I'm a water sport fan. The uh, the it's it's less well appreciated than Canandaigua Lake, but uh, the North Side of Seneca Lake is a world renowned kiteboarding and windsurfing. Uh, 
it's the, the, the geography is, is, is such that it's really good for that with the wind and the, and the, and the width of the lake and the, and the depth of the lake. So I, I get out there, I haven't gotten into kiteboarding and windsurfing, but I get out there with my paddleboard and kind of surf around, but I've been meaning to get more into that. I mean, I think more people need to realize that because I mean, both because I think I love, uh, like athletic tourism or, uh, but also, um, because sometimes I go out there on my paddleboard in the middle of the winter, uh, with my wetsuit on and they call the, uh, the, the rescue boats because (laughs) they're not used to people recreating, um, in, 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 in the winter and, you know, inclement <laughs> weathers, which is so, which is one key thing that I really want to change is that out here, I am like, a, in, at least in Geneva and Seneca, sometimes I'm considered like a, you know, an adrenaline junkie or something. But, it, you know, if you transplant me in Colorado or Montana, you know, I'm, I'm nothing. Yeah, you know, you're like a little are, blip. Yeah. That is so funny you say that. That's how people look at me too. And I'm like, and then I look at these videos on YouTube and stuff and I'm playing, playing around. I'm like, wait a second, I'm a nothing. (laughs) And and everyone out here thinks I'm like something like it's, you're exactly right. That's so funny out there. They're looking at you like you're nuts. Yeah. And I go, I I go running in the snow and I'm nuts. Like, you know, and for us, it's just what, it's that pinch to know you're alive, right? It's, it's pushing yourself. Oh yeah. I mean, I got to be sweating year round, you know, I got to, you know, regionally adapted, uh, outdoor activities. <laughs> got to find that for the peace of mind. Regionally adaptive. I love that. So cross country skiing, do you do that? I'm just, I'm doing that later today and I'm, I've, I've gotten into that. That's uh that's, that's my next Avenue for sure. So I don't know if you're, uh, do you have a backcountry ski setup yet? I I've, I've, I do backcountry skiing out west, but mm-hmm. I've not done any out east yet. So you want to hit Tuckerman's with me? I'm yeah, looking for, for I'm looking sure. for a drive mate to go out to Tuckerman's for a weekend in the next uh, two months. Where is that? It's in uh, the backside of Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's I a mean, serious I'm drive. Def- I love road trips and... You know, I got flexible schedule, so let's let's talk. Oh no, that's good because I've been researching it lately, and, and we'll close this segment uh, on talk about this. So Tuckman Ravine is one of the ravines on the backside of Mount Washington, where a lot of people uh, will climb up it, and it, it's a steep descent. And there's four or five different really places you can climb up. You can get right to the top of Mount Washington, ski all the way down. Um, it's pretty sick. It's like a two and a half mile hike into the base of where the, the pitch kind of levels off. And then you have to climb up the face of it to get up. But if anybody want to look up Tuckerman's ravine, it's a really famous backcountry place in the East coast. Cause like, you know, out West, you can backcountry ski every resort you go to pretty much. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I love to earn your turns. Yeah. I don't mind climbing to get my turns either. Like today, uh, I'm going this afternoon with, uh, so I have Bernie. I have a pit husky dog. For those of you who don't know, um, he uh, has been neglected lately because I've been working my tail off way too many hours. So today I'm going to take him out do a little snowboarding at Northampton Park here in Monroe County. So Northampton Park is like a a little small ski. Uh, it's a county park with a tow rope, so you can learn how to ski and snowboard there. 
very small, probably 100 feet, 50 feet, maybe elevation. And they have a sledding hill across the street. So I'm going to be able to go out there and I'll, I'm not using the tow rope. I'm just planning on climbing back up and going down because um, the value, there's just as much value climbing up as there is coming down. For sure. So um, I think I want to talk about recovery. I want to talk to cannabis plant. We got to bring this up. So, so you're a serious athlete. We've painted the picture. You're out West skier. And I know cannabis is something you, you, you enjoy your life. Is it tinctures? How, how is it that you use it for recovery? And let's just touch on it real quick uh, before we get to the next segment. We're going to talk about um, how you've gotten into the cannabis industry. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, the, the thing that always uh, comes out for me is, is that, is that recovery day, um, I, I like to call it off day edible. Um, and, and I've, I've kind of made a, I've kind of made it, made it. That sounds like a brand. It, I know. I, I, one day I hope so. So, you know, if anyone, if anyone, you know, is good at making branding, the listeners to this podcast, let me, let's link up. I'm but, stealing uh, it. You're done. I got it, it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, but if, if it gets, if it becomes more mainstream, then I'm going to be happy because I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an athlete who consumes cannabis and I mean, there's, that's for some people that doesn't fit, that doesn't match. And, uh, you know, I've, people are like, oh, I, you know, I would never consider you're, you're an athlete, you know, doing, you know, doing drugs or whatever. And, uh, but I mean, I believe that it's performance enhancing and, uh, one way that it is performance enhancing is, you know, in that recovery day, because, you know, the recovery day, you know, you want to eat, you know, a bunch of good food and you want to, you know, sleep a bunch and, you know, what better than, you know, a cannabis edible. And so, I, you know, I've, I've grown up making firecrackers, you know, with the, you know, graham crackers, peanut butter, you know, cannabis, and then, you know, throw in the oven for 40 minutes. Um, but I've, I've gotten, what do you call it? Wait a minute. 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 I just heard two of the three most favorite things and it's called a firecracker. Can you describe this again and describe how you put the cannabis into this? Yeah, it's real simple. It's, I mean, you just a graham cracker or some sort of cracker and then you you put peanut butter on it like a you know a few millimeters thick and then you you grind up some some cannabis and you you put it on there and then you sandwich it and then you wrap it in parchment paper and you throw it in the oven and if it's if you've already vaped the weed so it's basically already been decarboxylated you just throw it in for 20 minutes but if it hasn't and it's just fresh you just throw it in for 40 minutes and then basically you eat like a like a burnt cookie afterwards that doesn't taste great but it's honestly like as close to a full spectrum edible that i've ever had <laughs> i cannot wait to try this so you just yeah, ground up just ju- you just grind it up put it in there and then 40 minutes it wrapped in parchment paper boom done you, just, and you put oh it in at three. Gosh. You put it in at three twenty-five. Yeah. Oh, you even added the temperature because that's what I, that's the only thing I was missing. Oh, I can't. Yeah. Wait. The firecracker. Yeah, that's a great one. Oh man, oh man, that one's gonna be for this episode, everybody. That's gonna be the little tidbit leading into my my uh, Instagram in case anybody didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love and it. I mean, I've I've kind of moved on from you know having to make the, the you know the the labor of that you know as a as a good business person always considering the labor and uh, and so I've gotten a decarboxylator. Perfect. 
Um, and, and we're going to tease people with that. You're going to talk about that decarboxylation uh, and a little bit how you got in the industry here in a couple minutes. We're, folks, this is part one. We are doing a little format where we're going to split everything into two segments. So we're going to get the rest of Jacob's story here on the flip side next week. So, Jacob, I appreciate you joining us and telling us about your athletic prowess. And I can't wait to hear now when you got into the cannabis side of it. 